podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we'll be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, You Were Always Someone Else. This time, we're turning to the Swamp Thing comic book, particularly the Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing for inspiration. Follow us on the path of suns, and you may uncover a secret or two. When we cast You Were Always Someone Else, we discuss sources of inspiration from other games and media for our Invisible Sun games. Since we're going to be focusing on the Green Sun for a bit, we thought it'd be a perfect time to talk about Swamp Thing. Uh, As we joked uh, in a previous recent episode, uh, we've mentioned doing this a few times and never got around to it, but we've now mentioned it enough that we feel morally obligated to talk about Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, um, which really didn't require much to convince us. We both love this uh, particular run of comics. Uh, It has a lot of stuff to draw from for our Invisible Sun games, so we're happy to get around to it. And it fits really well with uh, many of our segments lately that have been focusing on the green sun. Wait, we're doing the comic book? (laughs) Because I've been watching the cartoon. Well, we'll get to compare notes on uh, whether the vehicle toys in the cartoon are the same as the vehicle toys in the Alan Moore comic book run. Um, (laughs) All of my notes, my notes are only uh, Swamp Thing, uh, You Are Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And a really bad modified cover of Wild Thing. Yeah, uh, I do have all the toys coming, like Swamp Things, you know, Swamp Buster, you know, Hydrofoil is super cool, and I can't wait for it to shoot missiles at bad guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We will put the uh, URL of the Swamp Thing animated series trailer or intro, I guess, uh, in the show notes. It is amazing in its own way. It is so so good. It is so good in the sense of mid eighties B tier animation studios. Um, yeah. My younger brother and I, we hated that song when we were growing up. Well, we just hated it so much, <laughs> but I think we'll probably get more inspiration out of the Alan Moore run uh, of the saga of the swamp thing. Yeah. Let's talk about saga of the swamp thing. Let's talk about yeah. another Alan Moore comic book. That's right. We've, and we have others to do later if we want. Um, uh, before we get to Did Alan we Moore, about another Alan Moore joint earlier. Let's see. We've, we've we've talked about doing Promethea. Okay, so we haven't actually done any Alan Moore stuff, have we? Yeah, I think we've mostly done Morrison. I'll have to look back at our list of notes. It's, we're we're recording episode ninety two, so um, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of notes to look at to see what we've done, and it is kind of a blur to some extent. We did uh, we did Doom Patrol and we did the Sandman. I think that's uh, about it for comics. So we haven't repeated any authors yet. Not yet. So anyway, Swamp Thing. Yeah. Uh, before we get to Alan Moore, it's worth noting that uh, Swamp Thing was created by Lynn Wine and Bernie Wrightson in the seventies. It was created as a uh, one-time story within a horror anthology series. So it was not originally built to be a continuing series, but the comics sold so well 
that the publishers went to Lynn Wine and Bernie Wrights and said, we want you to do a regular series. And of course, as the petulant young artists of the, they were at the time, they said no. Um, and then a year later, they said, I really like eating. So I will do this series. <laughs> uh, and they started a series. It had kind of it had fits and starts through what was a tumultuous time in comic book publishing. The late 70s is known as the Great Collapse um, in uh, for the in terms of numbers of series and the like. Yeah, DC blew up then. Did Marvel blow up too? Yes. They both had sort of uh, major culls in the breadth of their catalogs in the late 70s. Uh, and Brian Michael Bendis has been trying to undo that for a decade now. To, uh, accounts vary as to whether he's done that successfully. But <clears throat> it, it was a very <coughs> tumultuous time for uh, for comic books. And Swamp Thing was just kind of caught up in all of that. Uh, it relaunches again in the early 80s uh, to limited success. Uh, Lynn Wine confesses that he just sort of lost interest in it. Uh, and they hand it off to a few people to do six issues here and six issues there. Um, but it was really struggling to find a voice until they recruited who was at the time uh, a, a relatively unknown uh, British comic book writer. Um, he'd done some work in British comic books uh, and had had been had, had a claim in that, but hadn't done American comic books yet. And that would be Alan Moore. Uh, and comic books really wouldn't be the same after that because at the success of recruiting Alan Moore for Swamp Thing is rather directly tied to the interest in recruiting people like Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and some of the others that we've already talked about. Um, so this is a watershed moment uh, in kind of the, in modern comic books. Uh, and Swamp Thing becomes historically important, not just for its really great storytelling that we'll talk about, but because it is the beginning of this British wave of uh, authors coming into American comic books. And it is the series that sort of launches what would eventually be Vertigo, uh, though it doesn't start out as Vertigo, uh, yeah, but eventually, eventually pulls over there. yeah, into Vertigo. But we start, um, we start with issue 20 with Al, uh, for Alan Moore's actual run. Yeah, in issue twenty, it's it's really just handing over the reins. Alan Moore, you know, takes what came in the previous issues and just sort of ties it all into a nice little package and then throws it all out. Right. The title of the first issue, and in fact, this this issue was not collected with the first volume um, in many editions. So until the hardcover edition, and I think subsequent printings of the soft cover of the Alan Moore arcs, uh, they, they just left issue 20 out entirely. It would start with issue 21, which we'll get to for reasons. Um, um, I don't think they should have left out issue 20. It's kind of yeah, I agree. Uh, but I, I had not even read it until this most recent or the, the hardcover editions, which aren't all that recent now. But when they were reprinting these stories in the 90s, uh, they would start with issue 21. I mean, I can understand why they would start with issue 21, but issue 20 really leads into 21 in a very significant way. Yep. Uh, and if you're interested in in reading this stuff, you can get Saga of the Swamp thing. They have it collected. You can find it on Amazon or wherever. Uh, and I'll I'll drop a link in the show notes for it. Yeah, issue twenty is literally titled "Loose Ends" and is just tying yep. up loose ends and setting up what would be uh, Alan Moore's kind of authentic start for what is his own story in issue twenty one with what was considered for a long time to be the greatest single issue of a superhero comic book ever written. 
Oh, I could, I could get on board with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can come up with a better, uh, I, that I could come up with anything that's clearly better. Uh, but issue 21 is called uh, The Anatomy Lesson. And I, when I was an yeah. early collector of comics, I remember re- hearing about this thing called The Anatomy Lesson and Swamp Thing was such a terrible movie. How could that comic book be any good at all? Why bother messing with it? How could it be the best issue ever? And ignored it for years and years because I was a punk. Um, and then finally got around to reading it much later in the Vertigo era and loved it and re- found it why it is considered the best single issue uh, by a lot of people. Yeah, so... The anatomy lesson, I think, sets up a lot of the stuff that I think we can, you know, start pulling from for Invisible Sun for inspiration. Uh, and the the biggest thing here is that um, I think the biggest theme that it starts to set up here is, uh, I don't know, is this where the loss of your sense of self really comes into play in Swamp Thing? Because I think that I think that comes in much bigger later. Well, it, it certainly starts here. Um, yeah. So th- we will have massive spoilers for those who have not read this comic book in what is it now? 30 years. Um, yeah. Still totally worth it. Even if you know, you know, the major beats. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah. So, spoiler warning. We're going to talk about Swamp Thing and what happens. <laughs> yes. Um, in, in the anatomy lesson and why it's titled the anatomy lesson, it is revealed that the body of the Swamp Thing that, we have thought was the swamp thing was not uh, Alec Holland, the scientist who was killed in the swamps and was thought to have been turned into the swamp thing. Instead, the swamp thing is a collection of plant material that has simply tricked itself into believing it was Alec Holland. And the Floronic man explains this because he's doing the anatomy of the swamp thing. And in his notes, he explains that, this process has taken place. Um, let me let me just find it. But there's this idea of these flatworms that are able to share their instincts and memories uh, with each other through well cannibalism. Basically, scientists, you know, trained a flatworm to navigate a maze to get to you know the end of the maze, and then they cut that flatworm apart and fed it to other flatworms who. Uh, which were then able to navigate that same maze in the way that the first flatworm had learned. And that's the same process that, you know, the Florionic, the Florionic man says, Hey, Alec Holland blew up in this biohazard accident in the swamp and his collective memories and his, you know, his humanity got absorbed by nature uh, in part because of the you know explosion of whatever he was working on, and eventually reformed into this uh, simulacra of mm, a person made out of plants, but it was it was not Alec Holland. It was simply nature using his consciousness to you know rebuild its memory and its body. And so the autopsy is being done by a uh, B-tier, maybe C-tier villain of the DC Universe, the Floronic Man. And he's pulling out these organs and noting that these organs are completely non-functional. Like he has lungs, but the lungs are, are too fibrous to actually be used as lungs. And all the organs he's pulling out couldn't possibly function. Instead, they were sort of built in memory of what the this creature thought it was. It thought it was a human. 
So it was building human organs in order to replicate that body experience, uh, but non-functionally. So it was just uh, uh, just sort of this pantomime of anatomy, and hence the anatomy lesson. Yeah, and it's at that point in the in the issue where it's like, oh, Swamp Thing got shot through the head and died in the previous issue, but then as they're doing this anatomy lesson, he pulls out this sponge-like vegetable brain that can't function. So why is the Swamp Thing dead? Well, obviously it's not. So what's going to go on here? <laughs> yeah, Swamp Thing comes back and he's unhappy, especially after he reads the report that he is yeah. not who he thought he was. Yeah, and reading that report is where he, where the Swamp Thing realizes Oh, I'm not Alec Holland. I've never been Alec Holland. You know, my whole sense of identity is, you know, thrown out the window. So now what am I? And that that comes more into play further down in uh, the run that Alan Alan Moore had. And this is a good point then to say, what from this part can we draw from our Invisible Sun games? Or how is this Uh, similar to what we might be experiencing in Invisible Sun games? So there, there are a couple things. Um, there's this consciousness of nature. Um, and I don't know, we, we haven't really gotten into a whole lot of that yet, but, uh, in this issue, like there's this creature that thinks it's human. So it creates a human body with the material it has. And I can see that being a, you know, an NPC that shows up under the green sun, like, Oh, nature needs to talk to the the Visley that are here, and in order to make them feel a bit more comfortable, perhaps it does create a swamp thing like Avatar that it can embody. And this raises questions about what what does it mean in Invisible Sun to have a an existence in the gray that you're pulled out of to return to Indigo, uh, and the actuality itself. Uh, is that really two different bodies? Is it two different people? What is it? What is the relationship between your body now and your body then? Yeah. And that's, that's the part where I, I see parallels between what Swamp Thing is going through eventually where he's, you know, reckoning with the, the fact that he's never been Alec Holland, but he remembers being Alec Holland. So what does that really mean? Like, what does that mean for a Vizlay who lived a whole life in the gray and then comes back to the actuality just to realize, oh, that life d- didn't exist. Like, that life wasn't real, but you lived it. So what do you what do you do with it? Do you totally cast it aside and try to divest yourself of it? Or do you let that inform who you are now? And to some extent, is our identity anything but the collection and accumulation of our memories? And so even if he's only Alex Holland's memories, that might be enough to be what we would call an identity. And that is a tension that plays out throughout the Alan Moore run, really all the way through the five. It's now collected in five volumes. Um, So another thing that comes up, you know, in this first series uh, where Swamp Thing and the Floronic Man are you know, kind of butting heads with each other. I I looked at them as sort of representations of the different aspects of the green sun. There's the green sun and then you have the night side of the green sun. And I see Swamp Thing as a pretty good representation of what the green sun is, which is 
uh, life and life cycle and the, the present, which eh, not that so much, but um, it is like he is the perfect embodiment of the union between two biological um, creatures, entities. Like Swamp Thing is this union of the person Alec Holland and the natural world. And he represents the balance that green, the green sun always seeks to maintain uh, because nothing is permanent under the green sun. Everything eventually falls to decay and there's always a balance in the life cycle there. And Swamp Thing, you know, especially when compared to the Floronic Man, really represents that to me. Um, and would you, are you on board with the Floronic Man uh, representing the night side of green? It's not exact, but it is not a good exact, starting point. Yes, I think it is a good starting point. And we know we're still, I'm still fuzzy on what the night side means overall. Uh, but it's its a useful way to think about it. Um, I think a quick summary of the night side is that it's unchecked growth and cancerous infection. But it also includes things like all dangerous forms of nature, like poisons. And so there's, it's not just cancerous growth. It's also just sort of things that would harm other parts of nature. So it's a little, it's inexact, but that's okay. That's all of these are inexact. Uh, And I, but I think Floronic Man is a pretty, it's useful to think of him as representing sort of an unchecked uh, version of nature. And that, that in fact, his sort of madness is what, uh, creates a madness within the green and thus you could think of him as representing the dark side of green or night side of green. Well, and he doesn't, he doesn't aim for balance like Swamp Thing does. Swamp Thing is seeking to balance his humanity and, you know, the creature that he is while the Floronic man just wants plants to take over. And he provides a lot of lines you can steal ruthlessly if you are if you are going to create villains out of the night side of green, and he refers to people as screaming meat, oh. uh, and has a lot of other sort of monologue sort of quotes that are really very useful to include in uh, at, from your villains um, in the night side of green. So you were you were looking at him and thinking this would be a real good villain that you could drop into a campaign. I think you could drop pieces of what of his ideology and some of what he talks about and use it as the basis for even an entire faction uh, within the uh, night side of green uh, or you might borrow it somewhat for the warden of the night side of green it's a demogon or something i should yeah, have written that down right. something like that yeah um though again i think as presented in the book the night side of green is not as aggressively destructive of all things as much as it, you know, it's, it's more than just that. Um, so there's not like an active war between the, the, uh, night side and the day side of, of green, uh, but, I mean, unless you want to create that as part of your story. Um, so it might not be quite as extreme as Floronic man who seems in this story is trying to like right now, destroy all of animal life. <laughs> That's his mm-hmm. goal. Uh, and there's some fascinating passages, uh, with the Justice League, which shows you a little bit about Alan Moore's attitude towards the Justice League, where they're literally <laughs> sitting in space, looking down on the planet, just kind of twiddling their thumbs and wondering what could they possibly do? Yeah, well, you know, don't know. They could convert 
more of the atmosphere's CO2 into oxygen. And they're like, there are these huge plans. They could bring in alien plant life, um, uh, green lanterns. They can, and they, they, but they, they can't figure out anything they believe would actually work. So on the one hand, it establishes the importance of Swamp Thing as the only one who could really deal with this threat. But it's also Alan Moore trying to point out how distant and unhuman uh, the Justice League is because they're so powerful and they're thinking on such a large scale that uh, it, they're paralyzed to some extent. This has a par- this uh, parallels uh, a similar problem that we uh, are a similar use of the Justice League actually from Sandman uh, from the uh, the initial trade paperback we talked about way back in a previous episode. There's also an appearance by the Justice League fighting as a Doctor Destiny, something like that. Yeah, I don't remember uh, that and- one. They are also portrayed by Neil Gaiman there as being kind of robotic and inhuman um, and ill ill suited to deal with the sort of threat that in this case Sandman was going to be dealing with. Um, and I think it's it's a direct homage to the appearance of the Justice League in this uh, particular issue. Incidentally, uh, the the transition from just being a comic book like right now Swamp Thing is part of the DC universe. Um, to the creation of Vertigo was actually the point in time when they said, by the way, these characters are never going to cross over with the DC Universe characters anymore. We're not going to have you know, Batman appear in, in Sandman after they switched over to Vertigo uh, and the like. They're trying to cr- s- prevent there being sort of logical problems, but also advertising problems of uh, mature reader books being sold next to Superman. Uh, so it's interesting to see before that transition, the, how the mature reader style writers were using the Justice League and these other c- characters in very different ways. Um, and Swamp Thing eventually goes on to have a, a much bigger arc, doesn't he? Like he, he starts off as he's no longer Alec Holland, but isn't there something about him becoming more elemental? Yes, uh, and I don't know if we, we we probably won't ever get through all of the different volumes of Swamp no, Thing. I don't think so. Probably not. Uh, yeah, there's five volumes. Fallon Moore's run, which is really sort of a distinct arc. Part of that arc does involve him learning more about his his position as an elemental, uh, a representative of the green. And one uh, concept from I think it's volume four or something like that uh, of the Alan Moore run that's very would be very useful in our uh, Invisible Sun games is he meets the collection of the senior representatives of the green uh, known as the Parliament of Trees. And that's just an evocative image. Uh, And then the Parliament of Trees is involved in uh, kind of the development of Swamp Thing and his understanding of his powers. Um, They are involved in major um, problems that the Earth faces and how Swamp Thing is going to help try to defend the Earth from these forces. Specifically, I think uh, Volume 4 has oblique references to the crisis on infinite earths. But from this mature reader Swamp Thing perspective, which is kind of interesting, uh, it's developed even further later. I don't know much about this, but I know in the more recent like decade or so, they have elaborated to have say that there's not just the green, there's also the red, which is the kind of united force of animal life on Earth. And it, its champion is typically Animal Man. Uh, and so okay. you've got the red and the green, the balance between red and green, between animal and plant being very important. And it's mm-hmm. actually only possible with the inclusion of a third faction, which is the black or the rot. 
which is the representations of decay. And really, you can't have a balance between plant and animal without also having a component of, of decay, that death and decay is part of the natural cycle. And so while we often characterize like the, the the green and the red have their superhero representatives in Swamp Thing and Animal Man, the black and the rot, well, they're awful and they've got villains who represent them. But it's really supposed to all represent the balance essential in nature, that nature implies a cycle and thus it implies both growth and decay. Uh, and so it really comes out that you have to have a balance between these three different forces. But Frankly, I don't know that part of the DC universe very well, and it's a recent addition, at least compared to the Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing. But it's one that I think, in its basic sketch, could be very useful for people playing with the green sun and trying to figure out how do you balance plant life, animal life, and decay uh, into a vibrant and healthy green environment. And that's the thing in Invisible Sun. Decay is part of the green sun. like It <laughs> is in that life cycle. And yeah, red as animals, like, you know, they're, they're in the green sun, but I think it's much more interesting and important to note that part of the green sun is decay. It's in there. It's, it's natural. It's normal. It's not a nemesis that you have to think about. It's just part of the life cycle under the green sun. And uh, it, with, the invisible sun, yeah, animal life would be part of the green sun as well. It wouldn't be part of yeah. the red sun or anything along those lines. Uh, but the notion that there could be factions trying to argue for different balances between plant life and animal life and decay is, I think, a useful way of thinking about how the politics of the green sun might play out, how there might be conflict within the green sun as people assert different balances between these different groups. Yeah, we might find out we might find uh, some of those connections when we start talking about the locations on the, under the green sun. And I think maybe we should uh, cut it here. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive-Thru RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at tex underscore red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us.